Language is a cognitive tool that we use for survival. For the human species today, survival doesn't necessarily entail escaping a scary predator or fending for ourselves in the wild. Survival means being able to communicate and collaborate with the people around you, whether it's family, friends, peers, and being able to plan and execute tasks. All of these are possible through communication and language. Hi, you're listening to the first episode of the Brainwaves podcast. I'm your host, Swurti Vemuri, and we have a very special episode for you today. Uh, our first guest on this podcast is Dr. Michael Ullman. He is a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at Georgetown University, um, and he's also the director of the Brain and Language Lab and the EEG ERP Laboratory at Georgetown. Um, and Dr. Ullman's lab uh, kind of explores how language is learned and processed and represented in the brain and how language learning is dependent on memory systems in the brain. So thank you for being here, Dr. Ullman. Um, and would you like to talk a little bit more about your lab? Basically, the lab uh, examines the uh, neural and cognitive, psychological, if you will, um, computational bases of language. And in particular, as you also mentioned, how they relate to learning and memory systems in the brain. Uh, we also look at other issues in language, as well as how um, reading and math relate to those learning and memory systems. And, and if I understand correctly, your lab also recently has been looking into how language and uh, other aspects of cognition are affected in aging. That's right, exactly. And we can talk about that as well. Okay. Um, so I guess to start with like the evolutionary aspect of the development of language, uh, when we're talking about both like phylogeny and ontogeny at like the species level and in the individual level, um, and the uh, memory systems that are involved, um, your work talks about how they're evolutionarily ancient learning systems. So could you tell me more about that? Sure. So the way evolution often works is that there it um, involves a process that's sometimes called co-optation or acceptation. Uh, the idea being that when a new uh, function evolves, it usually is dependent on pre-existing mechanisms or structures that get reused or co-opted for this new function. So for example, um, feathers evolved from scales originally. So it does, it's not that feathers appear right. from nothing, right? They evolved from scales. And in fact, feathers originally are thought to have been involved in uh, thermal regulation, warming and so on, right? right? And then, you know, they helped some animal, you know, glide and fly and so on and so forth. So the idea um, of our own work is that uh, if uh, language uh, needs to be learned, well, one might expect it to depend on pre-existing learning and memory systems in the brain. And so uh, our main idea, the main hypothesis that we've been examining for a couple of decades or more now right. is that these two arguably primary learning and memory systems, the brain, one based on the hippocampus, called often called declarative memory, another based on 
another structure in the brain called the basal ganglia, often called procedural memory, that those have been co-opted for learning language. And more recently, we're also examining whether those have also been co-opted for learning reading and math. So are these systems um, conserved across species? Do, do animals also have these memory systems? Yes, exactly. So vertebrates have uh, these structures and these ability to learn, even if the structures might look somewhat different in different animals. Right. And what, what makes language uniquely human? So if other animals have these systems and we have these ancient learning memory systems, how, how have we evolved to be able to have this conversation right now to be able to read and write and co-op these structures um, versus other animals that also may possess like the declarative memory or procedural memory system? That's an excellent question. Uh, the answer, as most scientists will tell you for most things, is we don't know. At least <laughs> right. the scientists will tell you that. Um, it probably, however, is a combination of at least two things, two factors. One is that these uh, learning and memory systems have become, pro- probably have become subspecialized. So there are parts of these systems, if you will, um, that may be somewhat specialized for language, at least. Um, mm-hmm. Probably less so for reading and math, because it's more recent. Um, uh, or even in humans, there's evidence, for example, that uh, the um, basal ganglia-based learning, so procedural memory, is um, a little bit different um, in humans than in other animals. Um, and in addition, there are probably other structures that are work with these learning circuits right. that have become specialized for language, or at least specialized, I should be careful, I didn't actually mean what I said just there, not necessarily specialized for language in the sense that most people will understand that is not for language necessarily, but with additional capabilities that pro- allow us to learn language, whether or not they are specifically for language. Right. When we, when we think about humans, uh, we think about uh, higher cognitive functions. Um, and the areas of the brain that deal with these memory systems, like you mentioned, the hippocampus and the basal ganglia, um, are not traditionally thought of as frontal regions or higher cortical areas. So how, how does that play into language learning and um, how we process all of that? Yeah, so... Um... If you go back to my last answer, when I say other areas or other structures may also be um, somewhat specialized or have additional capabilities that allow us to learn language or reading and math, those are at least partly or largely probably cortical regions, which have greatly expanded in in, in humans. Um, right. So I guess the answer to your question is, maybe two or three things. Uh, First of all, these non-neocortical regions, like the hippocampus, probably do a lot more than most researchers have traditionally thought. Um, Because most research on language, for example, or reading and math has focused on the main outside of the the outside of the main part of the brain, the cerebrum, which is neocortex, right? Right. Um, but those, the neocortex still is doing a lot, and part of that may be because it has additional capabilities um, that allow us to learn these things um, um, and probably work closely together with these non-neocortical structures, the hippocampus and the basal ganglia. Right. And the, the cortical structures 
um, are thought to be very important in mediating things like executive function. And executive function develops early in life. And there's like an interesting relationship between our ability to learn and master our native languages um, and the decline in being able to acquire like skills of a non-native language in parallel to the development of like the frontal lobes and PFC. So my question to you is everyone always has like this idea that it's, it's too late to learn a language if you're an adult. Um, does this have to do with like the development of these frontal regions or their interactions with these memory systems and how, how does plasticity in early life play out in adulthood or in aging? So there are a lot of ex- aspects to your question. I'm right. going to focus on some of them. Um, so I'll focus on um, what we've been talking about and what my research also focuses on, which is the development of these uh, two memory systems or learning and memory systems, as I generally like to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's more and more evidence that these two uh, learning systems, that is declarative memory and procedural memory, uh, if you remember, respectively based on the hippocampus and the basal ganglia in the brain, right. that they um, have different, what might be called developmental trajectories. In particular, it looks like learning and procedural memory is pretty good when you're young and then declines over the course of childhood or adolescence and then remains kind of stable the rest of your life's life. Okay. More. Um, so that's why that might explain anecdotally why if you don't start doing something like playing a violin or being a gymnast early on, you probably won't achieve very high levels, even if you do it a lot, right? Right. In contrast, learning and declarative memory is very bad when you're young. Like you don't remember anything from when you were one or two years old, right? Right. Um, in fact, there's even a name for it, infantile amnesia, and then seems to improve over the course of childhood and adolescence, probably is at its peak, its maximum in um, adolescence, early adulthood, and then it's all downhill. Okay, so, right. So basically, these if you tie this now to language, this may help explain why it's uh, easier to learn language when you're young. So for example, since procedural memory, we haven't talked much about this, but procedural memory is important for automatizing what you learn. Simplifying right. a little bit here. Um, so becoming very fluent, if you will. Mm-hmm. Then if you don't start young, then procedural memory isn't as available. Okay, Even if you right. might use declarative memory sort of to compensate, that's not going to give you that fluency, if you will, um, that procedural memory might give you. Okay. And... So you have the two systems, the declarative and the procedural memory systems. I guess, what would you speculate is the evolutionary purpose of having two separate systems for, for like the declarative memory system is for more episodic semantic memories and procedural system, like you were saying, is for something like learning to play the violin or learning to ride a bike. Um, what, what would be the reason for that split and how do they interact? So there's two questions there. Why do we have both of them and how do they interact? So for the first question, you know, we don't know evolutionarily. We can't answer that. Right. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who is, has passed away a while ago, but was a famous evolutionary biologist, he would call those just so stories. Like we can make up stories as to why right. something happened in evolution, but it's hard to obtain evidence for that. Uh, nonetheless, we can 
tell a justice story, we can speculate, and basically these have different capabilities. So declare the hippocampal-based learning um, is very rapid and can learn arbitrary stuff, remembering uh, a scene, um, you know, um, where the tiger was, where the saber-toothed tiger was, things like that. And right. procedural memory is more for acquiring skills like um, being able to throw the spear or chip rocks or whatever. Right. So, and that's for humans, but you know, for for animals, there are analogous um, things you can learn in both systems. In terms of their interaction, that's a whole interesting topic. I'll say two things about that. The two systems, that is declarative memory and procedural memory, appear to interact in at least two ways. Okay. One is that they um, can play what we in our research often call redundant roles. That is, they can both do the same things. So although I just said that procedural memory is good for motor skills, for example, and declarative memory for learning what you called episodic or semantic memory knowledge about personal experience is episodic knowledge, like where I was when I had dinner yesterday, or semantic knowledge, you know, what's the capital of Burkina Faso, things like that, right? Um, They can also learn the same things, so uh, at least to some extent. So, for example, in our own work, grammar um, can be learned by procedural memory. So, you know, our grammar as native speakers is, for English, for example, is very automatized, right? Right. we don't have to like retrieve. Oh, what's the rule for how I do I put the before cat and so on? So it's automatic, probably the right. procedural memory. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that declarative memory can also do some of that work. So, for example, if a individual or group is particularly good at declarative memory, they might rely more on declarative memory for grammar. Or if they're bad at procedural memory, they may compensate with declarative memory. Okay. So that's one way in which the two systems interact. The other way. Is less well understood, but it's something that we call in our research uh, the seesaw effect. Some people call it the competition effect. or okay. And that is, there's evidence that when you lesion, for example, uh, one system, the other one gets better. And we're not sure exactly why in either direction. Right. So it's, uh, they do interact in interesting ways. So are these, I I guess the idea of redundancy in biology is very interesting to me because it seems like a way for for us humans to have like a fail-safe mechanism or like something to rely on when something goes wrong, like you were saying, these leisure studies. Um, And uh, so what mediates which system is in use if if there is this redundancy and this um, competitive aspect between the systems? Is it like a subject level interaction? Or is it like through the environment or how does, what would, I guess, induce that, the activation of one and and not the other? Great set of questions. Um, So I'm going to rephrase it and answer it. Um, So for example, going back to the example I gave before of grammar, which can be learned in either system, the way it seems to work is declarative memory so let's so that, take the case of grammar where it looks like both systems, declarative and procedural memory, can both support it, can both learn grammatical knowledge, right? right? So basically, the evidence is, including from other things we can learn, but uh, that are learned, but in, in animals, literature on rats, um, right. rat animals, that declarative memory learns first, so uh, because it's 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 quick. Eventually, however, procedural memory will learn the analogous information, the grammatical rules, and automatize them. And then probably because it's so quick 
it just comes before declarative memory and then it takes over. So I I may have declarative knowledge of grammar, but I just don't use it in most circumstances because okay. legal memory is just doing the work really quickly. Right. Um, there's evidence um, that if the basal ganglia is then lesioned, um, then we go back to the declarative memory. So it's okay. not that it appears, it's that it's not used. Okay. So is this the idea of conscious recall versus... I guess the other side of conscious recall would be automatization or implicit. So it's basically okay. words that are usually used in this field are explicit and implicit knowledge, explicit knowledge being knowledge that's available to conscious awareness and implicit knowledge being that which is not, you know, okay. conscious. It's a fuzzy definition of what's consciousness, but that's widely used way of thinking about it. Um, so to answer your question, not really, at least not in my opinion. So traditionally, I hope this doesn't get too complicated, but traditionally um, people have thought of declarative memory as being kind of equivalent to um, explicit knowledge. Like explicit knowledge depends on declarative memory and declarative memory underlies explicit knowledge and procedural memory, same thing for implicit knowledge, but that's not the case. There are many implicit memory systems, it's not only procedural, even declarative memory can underlie implicit knowledge. So yeah, declarative memory is really important for explicit knowledge, but it's not a simple one-to-one correspondence between explicit and declarative memory and implicit and procedural. Right. Okay. And um, I guess I have a more personal question for you. Um, when when you started out in this field of uh, language learning, memory, um, what inspired you to look at language in terms of these memory systems? It was something when when you I guess, came up with this idea and started studying it. Um, it wasn't that popular of an idea that language would rely on these existing memory systems. So what inspired you to look at it in that through that lens? Yeah, that's a nice question to sort of reveal how science actually works. Um, so I was um, a grad student, a PhD student at um, MIT years ago. Actually, my, my mentor, my advisor was someone who's since... Then, not at the time, become well known Stephen Pinker, sort of public intellectual. And wow. okay. uh, we were working on um, basically a simplified model of grammar and lexicon of rules and you know the words, the rules right. of grammar and the words in a in a language, the lexicon. Um, and uh, you know, Steve Steve Pinker's background is a psychologist, and we were looking at behavioral studies. And then I sort of wanted to get into the brain because that was interesting for me. And so I sort of put together a team of other people at MIT together with Steve to do this. We tested a bunch of patients, patients with damage in different parts of the brain. Um, and the results puzzled me. And I was um, on, a, on a walk with my uh, girlfriend at the time. Okay. Ipswich Audubon Wildlife Sanctuary north of Boston. Oh, wow. Okay. Crossing a bridge, and I was thinking about my results, and I sort of paused on the bridge, looked over onto the stream, and I was like, oh, holy cow. <laughs> That's an idea. And so I suddenly realized that this might be tied, that the results might be explained by linking language to these memory systems, originally grammar to procedural memory and lexicon to declarative memory. And then, of course, it's much more complex than that. Right. Where this, So it was very much an epiphanous idea, like a moment some things became clear. And of course, not everything became clear. Just right, the, right. The, and and like, it was like an out-of-lab epiphany for you. You were yeah, just talking yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, it had not been proposed before. 
uh, yeah. Not, or, yeah. And so, so you put a team together after that, and you started exploring language in terms of memory systems, correct? Basically, yeah, yeah. That's that's very cool. I've I've read about your work and Dr. Pinker's work in my classes. So that hearing this backstory yeah. to to yeah. how like all of the stuff that I learned came about yeah. is very interesting. Uh, I guess okay, going back to these memory systems, um, are they? Uh, do they function the same across um, different um, groups of people, like men and women? Do they have like differences, or younger and older people, or are there like cultural differences exactly. or regional? Yeah, yeah. There's probably all. There are probably all kind of factors that affect different aspects of these two memory systems and also what they do in language. So for example, um, people have individual differences in how good one or the other memory system is. Um, so you may be better at declarative memory than me, maybe I'm better at procedural or so on. Um, as a function of actual individual differences like genes and you know prior knowledge and things like that, um, mm -hmm. uh, sex that is male, female seems to play a role probably largely because of estrogen, but probably not only. Okay, uh, age plays a difference. I mentioned that before, right? Like right. One, yes. Either one system gets worse. They um, they also change at different um, different ways in aging, like in old age, right? So declarative memory increases more in old age than. Um, than procedural memory, right? So this is like, you know, one's grandparents, like they can't remember the name of someone or facts and stuff, can't retrieve like the senior moment kind of thing. That's it's often declarative memory. Um, there are all kinds of factors that affect how good or even in different ways how good one or the other memory system is. And so, for example, if you're better at, if we're both learning language and you know, let's say second language, okay, and you're better at declarative memory, you're going to probably rely more on declarative memory as compared okay. to for right. those things like grammar that could be learned in either system. Okay. And earlier you mentioned the role of estrogen in mediating these differences possibly. Uh, so what, what does estrogen do in terms of these individual differences between men and women for learning languages? So it, estrogen seems to be associated with better declarative memory. There's okay. also, I think, some hints that it might be associated with worse uh, learning and procedural memory because of the okay. seasonal effect. I mentioned lesions before, but the other circumstances in which you have this kind of competition between the memory systems. Right. Well, the evidence is stronger, though, that is much better, uh, stronger that it helps declarative than it hurts procedural. Um, and um, so that would translate to um, you know, individuals or groups with higher estrogen or those times when they have higher estrogen in terms of the menstrual cycle, for example, having greater abilities to learn in declarative memory and therefore might have consequences for which system, for example, you learn in when you're learning something that can be learned in either system like grammar. Right, okay. I guess transitioning a little bit more into language learning, First language and second language learning is a little different depending on when you learn them. Because uh, you were saying earlier, um, procedural memory is involved in automatization, and that starts at an early age. So for for anyone that's learning a second language, um, are they depending more on these declarative memory uh, associated uh, skills? Yes, that's what the evidence suggests. But that that seems to be true. 
it's probably overall a greater dependence uh, at all stages of learning a second language in the second language than in native speakers of a first language. But it's particularly true at earlier stages in learning a second language because that's when the creative memory is doing its biggest job. But because procedural memory in, let's say, a 20-year-old who's learning a second language isn't seem, doesn't seem to be as good as um, in a younger person, procedural memory may never really take over for grammar. And so right. even after years let's say that by the time they're 40, you know, they still may depend more on declarative memory than someone who learned the language as a native language. Okay. And is there any way to encourage automatization in someone that's learning a second language later in life? Practice. Right. Probably we have, uh, there's some evidence, we have a paper that suggests that immersion um, uh, is helpful for that as opposed to classroom learning. And okay. that kind of makes sense if you think about it because immersion allows for much more rapid back and forth, which is consistent right. with um, learning in an automatized way. Right. And uh, could you define immersion, please? Um, so not necessarily being not being taught, for example, the rules of the language explicitly, so lack of explicit input. And okay. on the other side, just being in... An, a environment where you're hearing the language at a nor- at a rapid pace, a normal pace of speaking, right. a lot of it, and so right. the procedural system, among other things, there's several reasons for this which I'm not going into, but among other things, has just a lot of practice and right. um, allows it to eventually automatize. Okay, that's that's very interesting. Um, I feel like I've tried to learn second languages myself. Um, I. I lived in Portugal for about six months. And before I got there, I tried the whole Duolingo thing where I tried to learn words and phrases that were that they were like feeding to me through the app. Um, and I got to Portugal and I realized I just knew how to say hello, thank you, please, just the basics. Um, and I lived in a nunnery for two and a half months, three months by accident. I didn't know I was going to end up there. And none of the nuns spoke English. They just spoke Portuguese, Spanish, Latin. Um, so I felt like through living there and trying to communicate um, with these non-English speaking nuns, I picked up way more of the language than I could have possibly by an app. Right. And that's, I mean, you're, you know, just to emphasize, taking your example, emphasize what I was getting. It's not just the learning and procedural learning automation. There's just a lot more input. A lot right. More input. Right. So we've talked about a little bit about development. We've talked about uh, first languages, second languages. Um, so how do these all relate in terms of aging and cognitive decline? And that's a little more what your lab is looking at recently. So could you talk to me more about that? Yeah. So I'll kind of give an overview for mm-hmm. your audience right. um, yes. uh, of aging in the brain and cognition. Um, probably the Bottom line, the one or two or three liner is something like, although we get worse at most things as we get older, and that starts quite young, like it's one 20s for the most part, although it accelerates when you get older, you also get better at some things. Okay. Um, and essentially, the reason for the former is your brain declines in various ways as we get older, even starting from, you know, when it's 120s or 30s. And for the latter, that is the improvements, is because of experience. So, for example, a um, you know a fifty-year-old will simply, on average, right, know more than a twenty-year-old, and the reason is kind of obvious: is they've lived another thirty years. So, even if they 
can't acquire new knowledge as well as the 20 year old because the declarative memory is worse, right? They've had 30 more years of, of, of exposure to the knowledge of learning. So there, you know, there's a lot of evidence that basically uh, knowledge it just increases, right? Um, over over the years, um, although at a some at some point um, that seems to plateau or reverse, and probably uh, that's because the brain declines, sort of outweigh the experience in a sense. Okay, right. And then, um, as you know, we've talked about this before. Um, Although most of the evidence till now has been about knowledge improving as one gets older, what's often crystallized intelligence, crystallized knowledge, just facts, like facts okay. in the world, like what the capital of Burkina Faso is. Okay. Africa. What is the capital of Burkina Faso? Wagadougou. Okay. Um, um, there's more recent evidence, including a paper of ours um, this year, um, that skills can also improve with practice. Um, in particular, we found that um, a, what's sometimes called executive inhibitory ability, the ability to sort of focus on something and inhibit distractions, for example, right? That that, which has been widely thought by scientists and you know, popularly to decline with aging, we actually found in a large study, careful analyses and so on, that it actually it seems to improve up to one's mid-70s or so and then decline, probably for the same reasons I mentioned about knowledge, which is basically, you know, as you get older, you just have more practice with this, with inhibiting things, right? Right. Um, but eventually your brain declines catch up with that. Okay. And so is there the brain decline over time catches up and these executive inhibitory control abilities also tend to decline. Um, so could exercising skills related to these memory systems, like learning a new language? Yeah, principle, yes, but um, I would be very hesitant or even argue <laughs> against that, you know, brain games types of, you know, would, would help. Um, okay. That's more of a marketing ploy. <laughs> right. It every, is. Everyday life that helps. And what is your advice for someone that wants to learn a new language? Well, start early, but you don't have control over that. I mean, for your kids, you might, right? Right. Uh, I think in, you know, immersive bilingual school or live in a place or talk if, if you're a heritage speaker, you know, speak that language at home if you want your kids to learn it. That These are kind of right. obvious, nothing new, right? Right. But, uh, you know, coming from a language scientist, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> A little more weight, perhaps. Yes, definitely. Um, and um, that's also true if you're older, right? As we talked about before. Right. And there are also certain um, ways that can. There's certain techniques or approaches that are reasonably well studied that improve one's ability to learn in particular retain information in for example declarative memory so okay. i'll mention a couple of them and those can therefore help you learn and retain information in declarative memory in language too and so one right. of them you may have heard of your audience may have heard of one or both of these one's called often called the testing effect or retrieval practice the other one's called the spacing effect so right. the testing effect if i ask you Sperti, what's the capital of burkina faso Right. Okay. Um, so, okay. I don't starts know. Starts with can, a W, maybe? It's OU, but it's okay. written oh. in French. But okay. yeah. So, by trying to retrieve it, 
okay, whether you're successful or not, you are more likely to now retain it than if I just told you. So that retrieval, that okay, you helps you learn stuff and retain that information in declarative memory. The other uh, technique called the spacing effect is if I um, tell you today the capital of Burkina Faso is Ouagadougou, and then I tell you a month from now, okay, you are more likely to retain it a year from now than if I tell you this one minute apart. So by spacing out the presentation of the information, you're more likely to retain the long term. And then if you do right. both testing and spacing together, it's even better. We have a paper that came out this year on that. Right. Okay. Um, so these techniques, which are pretty well studied in the learning and memory literature, can be applied to language learning. Um, and in fact, we have a couple of papers showing that. So um, that probably helps at least for initial learning and declarative memory, even independent of proceduralization. So there are ways we can sort of help uh, language learning like with techniques like this, although the best way is simply early and a lot. Right. Okay. Thank you. And I guess um, one final burning question from myself, is it ever too late? Maybe it's not possible to achieve fluency like in a native language, but is it ever too late to um, l- become proficient at a, a second, third language? I, I think of it more probabilistically and as a continuum. Um, it gets harder and harder. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you everything, so to speak, right, you know, immersive environment and so on, probably it'll facilitate it. But as one gets older, it is harder on average, right? Yes, on average. Thank you so much, Dr. Ullman, for your time and for being here. My pleasure. Um, Thank you for inviting me. Yes, of course. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And be sure to check out Dr. Ullman's lab website if you are interested in reading more about his work. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Spurthi Vemuri. And this is the first episode of the Brainwaves podcast.